Maybe I should go halfway down here. <laughs> there we go. Um, I hope you do have uh, Psalm 32 open in front of you, and uh, I hope you'll find this to be uh, something that will uh, make this psalm sort of come alive to all of us in terms of what's being said here. Um, let's take a moment just to pray once again. Father, your word is not just that which is uh, fascinating or interesting or sometimes relevant, Lord. Your word is truth. It is God-breathed. It is the revelation of you, the true and living God. And uh, Lord, your word also is alive and it is powerful, it is active, and so we pray that it would have an active... um, role and work in our own hearts, and that you would use this, Lord, to bring about in us uh, a, a walking in the light as you are in the light, and may the blood of Christ cleanse us all from sin. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I wonder if you've ever had the joy and pleasure of playing hide-and-seek with a little toddler. Uh, I'm looking forward to that here in the coming months. Uh, with my grandkids, but uh, I can remember with my own children, uh, you give them an opportunity to go hide, and so off they go to hide, and it's just interesting how little kids think sometimes, because children will find their way behind the draperies, you know, the full-length draperies that go down the floor, and they're hiding behind the draperies, meanwhile their feet are clearly visible, you know, and so you're thinking, how do you sort of go along with this for a while? Or sometimes you'll get close to them and they're hiding somewhere and you hear them snickering. You know, and you're like, uh, this is a little obvious here, and, uh, but that's the way they do it because why? Well, as a small child, they think that they are completely hidden and can't be seen. And I think about this because the account in the scriptures early on in human history It wasn't funny at the time. Actually, it was really quite tragic. We read that Adam and Eve, after they had disobeyed God, the God who loved them, the God with whom they'd had incredibly wonderful fellowship and joyous interaction with and communion with for for a period of time, here they were, hunkered down, doing their best that they could do to hide themselves from God. That, to me, is not a humorous situation. That is a true, tragic situation. And it's really desperate, because what we learn in Scripture over and over and over again is that people who are proud in their hearts, and if you take a proud person and you add the component of guilt, and you add the component of shame, then that person who is proud and lifted up, will oftentimes involve themselves in making choices that are illogical to somehow hide themselves from God. But the scriptures say again and again, Hebrews 4, there is no creature hidden from God's sight. All things are laid open and bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. We also read in Psalm 33, the Lord looks from heaven And he sees all the sons of men. From his dwelling place, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. 
Jeremiah 23, we read, Can a person hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him? Declares the Lord. Do I not fill the heavens and the earth? Do you hear that question being raised as, What, are you kidding me? You think you're going to hide from me, the all-seeing God? Proverbs 5.21, The ways of a person are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. In reading all those things and making all those opening statements, again, it just leads me to the statement that says, obviously, even all those things that are true, yet, if we're honest, haven't all of us, at one time or another, found ourselves attempting to somehow try to hide from God? Now, why would we do such a thing? Because it's really, honestly speaking, it's foolish, and yet we've all done it. And the answer I've come up with, there are several answers, but I think, I wonder if among these might be some of the answers. That is, first of all, we're trying to sort of avoid dealing with God about our sin. So it's an avoidance technique. We're trying to avoid maybe dealing with other people about some sin in our life. Or we're trying to perhaps avoid dealing with God in the sense that we want to escape the consequences of our sin. So somehow if we think we can hide from that, we can somehow shield ourselves from those consequences. And so sometimes people, in their attempt to keep things hidden, they will lie or they'll be involved in maybe not being as honest or as forthcoming about something that they've been involved in or what's been going on. At other times, perhaps we shift into the mode of of putting the blame on somebody else. And so we use them as a scapegoat. We use the circumstances that have gone on as somehow an excuse for what's been happening. And so we're shifting all of the things around to the fault is sort of out there somewhere instead of being right here in our heart. Maybe we're trying to maintain our image or our reputation. And so we sort of live in denial and somehow think that God will also join us in that denial. But obviously what's happening here and what we don't realize or what we don't want to come to terms with is the fact that our own heart is twisted. Our own heart is corrupt. Our own hearts are really wicked. And we really don't want to admit that to God. We don't want to admit that to other people. And we don't want to admit that to even to ourselves. One of the most dramatic accounts of Scripture in which someone was trying to hide his sin from God was really the most unlikely person you would think that would ever do that. This person was described at one point as being a person with a heart after God. A person who had composed worship music that was so good, it's been recorded and copied and is known all around the world even today. This person was a a national political and a religious spiritual leader, a person who had witnessed firsthand God's deliverance and his powerful intervention many, many times, a person who was great in courage and, and strength. And yet, from all outward indicators, his life looked normal. Life continued on with great success and with great position of privilege, But perhaps because this person was in such high position and had achieved so many things and had had an experience that was unlike many people's experiences, perhaps it's because 
this person was tempted to think more highly of himself because of those things. But this person called King David became ensnared in scandalous sin. And rather than repent at the first moment that he felt a strong urging of his heart to yield to this evil desire, he became ensnared in an affair with a married woman. Instead of admitting the wrongdoing at that point and facing the consequences, he decided to carry out a sinister scheme in which he would do his best to cover up his involvement with this woman by making sure that her husband was put to death because he was put in a very dangerous position in battle. And sure enough, that indeed happened. His attempt to somehow cover up and the scheme to somehow keep this as a secret was successful for a period of time. Indeed, the gentleman died, the, the husband of this woman, and still no confession of sin on David's part. He eventually takes the woman to be his own because come to find out she's pregnant. Here she is, moved into the king's palace. Everything looks like uh, it's been contained. There's no real scandal going on here, and life goes on. And from all outward indicators, it did look as if things were normal which is one of the really alarming aspects of hiding sin from God and other people. It is possible to continue this for quite a time. As a matter of fact, some people have estimated they think it took a year between the time of the affair and the time of the writing of this psalm is 12 long months of hiding from God and hiding from other people. Finally, it took Nathan the prophet who came to David and said, listen, you are the person who has committed this horrible sin. And David finally comes out of the shadows. Finally. Finally he stops hiding. Finally he accepted full responsibility for his immoral and his murderous actions. Finally, from David comes the expressions of a contrite heart and where he, he seeks God earnestly for cleansing. Finally, he asks God to restore within him a joy that he had been lacking for an entire year ever since the actions of a year ago and he composed, at that point, Psalm 51, which we're not going to look at too much today. But in this prayer of Psalm 51, he promised at some point, he said, Lord, in all my crying out to you, I want to be able to be used by you to teach other people about what it's like to finally come out of the shadows, come back into light, and to be forgiven, and to know and enjoy the communion I had with you that's now restored. And so after he reflects on it, and thinks even more about it, and begins to take those steps, he writes Psalm 32. And in this psalm, I think David is giving us some very helpful instruction, because we are involved in the process of seeking God, seeking Him individually and seeking Him as a church. And if we've been following our steps here, we've been talking about the whole need to seek God 
And then secondly, we looked last week at the need to approach him humbly. Thirdly, this week we're looking at approaching God honestly. And I think in this text, David gives us three reasons why it makes good sense to honestly agree with God, say the same thing with God, to confess our sins to God. And we find them here in chapter 32 of Psalms. First of all, we find out in verses 1 and 2, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. I would say, first of all, the reason why it makes sense to come out of the dark, out of the shadows, to come into the light and admit our sin to God is because admitting the truth about our sin is the first step to finding God's remedy for the real problems in our heart, our sin. We will never, ever know and we will never, ever enjoy the sweet fellowship with God until we come face to face and admit the seriousness of our sin. You see, after David reflects upon the corruption of his heart and his reprehensible behavior, he honestly and humbly admitted his wrongdoing to God. You look at those first two verses there. David is going to utilize a number of different words in the original language in Hebrew there. He's going to use those terms to allude to different aspects of his sin. And I think it's interesting to real quickly notice this. The first one he translates, verse 1 and verse 5, he talks about transgressions. He whose transgressions are forgiven. The word here means departure, going away. It's used to describe rebellion against God. It's used to describe when you step over the line in terms of God's authority and you defy that authority. And David is saying essentially, Lord, I admit that I, have, I knew what the boundaries were. I knew what your will for me was. And yet I deliberately chose to step over that line anyway. I think I saw not too long, uh, one time not too long ago in a repeat of uh, America's Funniest Videos, they had a, a little toddler who is uh, standing there. He's looking at a little glass, a glass of water, I think, on a, on a little table that's low down the coffee table. And you can hear the mother's voice who's recording him. And you can see this child making this movement. He's just doing this. And mom's going, nah, nah, every time he just keeps going that direction. Like he's leaning there just to see. Is she going to say anything? Is she going to say anything? David didn't just lean that way. He kept going, deliberately knowing this is not appropriate. This is not honoring to God. This is defiance of his will for me. Don't we do the same? Don't we essentially step over the line of what we know to be, the boundaries that God has put in his love and grace before us? And he said, well, we'll do it anyway because we do it because we want to enjoy the comfort, the pleasure, to somehow succeed in our plans, in our schemes to really do what we want to do. And so we deliberately defy God's authority. David admitted that. And so part of our attempts to be honest with the gods is to say, Lord, we sometimes resist you. We sometimes assert ourselves against you. And we want to be our own king. We want to be in charge. We want to run life the way we want to run life. And so we have to agree with Isaiah 
He says, all we are like sheep, and we just turned our back on our shepherd, and we just said, I'm going to go wherever I want to go. I'm not following his lead. I'm just going to be a foolish, willful, defiant sheep, gone and turned each one to his own way. Secondly, David uses a term here in verses 1, 3, and 5. The Hebrew word for sin is translated sin in this translation I'm using which closely resembles and is similar to the word used in the New Testament for sin. And so it, it means to miss the mark. It means to fall short, to not hit the target, the bullseye of God's will. And so sin is serious because we fail to live up to God's standards. We've not done what we've been commanded to do. We've looked in previous weeks here in our sermons on God's two great commands, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, love your neighbor as yourself. We have failed to do that, haven't we? And when you think about it in this instance, David is told to love God and love other people, and yet he did what we do, and that is we use people. We use them for our own enjoyment, for our own needing our own needs. And so David, wouldn't you agree, and isn't it true that David would not in any way tolerate, neither would you, tolerate people who would use them in order to accomplish their own sinful desires. And so he wouldn't tolerate or approve of the kind of treatment he did to Uriah, this guy he had put to death in harm's way in military, take somebody else's wife and make her his own. And so we obviously are like, it's true in 1 John chapter 3 where the scriptures say, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. We just sort of, sin is lawlessness. Sin is not doing what God has clearly commanded. And David says, listen, I'm operating out of my heart. I don't really have love for others. I have love mostly for myself. And we do the same, don't we? We fall short in our thought life, in our words, our desires, and in our behavior. Sometimes we only think of maybe the outward things that we do, but boy, there's lots of sin going on in our affections, in our minds, in our attitudes. And the Lord knows all these things. Thirdly, the word translated there in verse 2 and verse 5, the Lord does not impute iniquity. Iniquity. That's a Hebrew word that means twisted or corrupt. David's reflecting on the fact of his own sin nature. And he's now reflecting on where does it come from? Why, why am I doing what I'm doing? He's not blaming it on his parents. He's not blaming it on his, his advisors. He's not blaming it on his brothers. He's not blaming it on anybody. He begins to understand the nature of his corrupt heart. And so he admits his heart has a natural bent toward evil rather than doing good and following God's will. I wonder, if you ever, have you ever admitted that to God? Honestly saying, Lord, my heart is so twisted and corrupt. I have to own my own sin. I can't use the excuse of other people or stress or challenges I have in my life or my dog that won't stop barking or my neighbor or whatever it is that we tend to sort of fall back on. We admit there's moral uncleanness in the inner parts of our heart. And it affects everything that we do affects our thoughts, our speech, our actions, everything. And so David says in Psalm 51, I was brought forth in iniquity. 
He's not saying his mother was in sin when, she was, when he was conceived. He's saying, ever since the moment of my conception, my heart has had this problem. And yet the Lord desires truth in the inward parts. So what helped David to honestly admit the pervasiveness and the seriousness of his sin? What brought him to the point where he could finally sort of reflect on all those different components of his sin? Well, if you read verse 1 and 2 again, and you read it from the point of view of, here's a person leaving the shadows of hiding and using as excuses or shifting the blame of their sin away from God. Here's a person who's coming out of the shadows, coming into light, saying, Lord, I'm dealing with you on your terms. I'm coming to you admitting the real me and what I am and what I've done and who I've, what I think and what I've chosen to act on. And he says he does it. Why? Because of the grace and the mercy and the love of God. That's what's drawing him out of the shadows. That's what's allowing him to be honest and real is because he's saying, Lord, I'm coming to you as the one who what? As a rebellious person, as a person who's in inner heart is corrupt, I can come to your presence. Why? Because you're a God full of love, full of mercy, full of grace. Look what he says there. It is God, verse 1, who forgives humble, honest, contrite sinners. The word he uses there when he says God forgives. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. The word there literally means to lift off. And I can't help but think in my mind as I've thought about that image of lifting off of us a big heavy weight of our sin. Oh, to think about the mercy of God lifting the heavy weight of not only David's sin, but how about your sin and my sin? That great, great story of Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan used in his uh, illustration of so many biblical and spiritual truths the pilgrim who carries along on his back for a long, long time this heavy load of his sin. And that load is just weighing him down, leaving him bent over, leaving him worn out. And it's at the time that pilgrim comes to the cross, and at the time when he realizes what Christ did for him at the cross, at the time in which he has this realization that It is my offense against you, a holy God, and yet Jesus died for me in his love and grace. That all of those burdens of that heavy, heavy weight of sin falls off of his back. And that heavy load is finally gone. What a wonderful, wonderful truth that God forgives our sin and that we are promised that all of our transgressions will no longer be held against us. That heavy weight is gone. Listen to these verses. Isaiah 43. I, even I, God says, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Psalm 103. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. You see, Jesus bore the full weight of my sin. He bore the full weight of your sin that we might bear it no more. If you've been hiding, my friend, in the shadows of shame, if you've been hiding in the shadows of compromise, 
covering up your rebellion, using excuses, minimizing the seriousness of the issues of your heart before a holy God. My friend, come to Christ. Confess your sins. Forsake your sin and claim the promise of God that there is full forgiveness through Jesus who died for you. If you've never done so, I urge you even this day, come to the foot of the cross, repenting of your sin, claiming Jesus' death for you, claiming Jesus' resurrection from the dead for you as your only hope of having that full weight of sin removed from off your back. Look at also in this wonderful text of Scripture, verse 1, the second line there, he says, whose sin is covered. Again, beautiful language he's using here, alluding to the image of the Day of Atonement, a day in which once a year the blood of bull and goats is taken and it's sprinkled on the mercy seat, which is on top of the Ark of Covenant. Again, it's sort of depicting the laws here, and here's this mercy seat, the blood comes here, and between God there is there's someone that's paying for the offense that is recorded in the law. Here the symbolic gesture of the Day of Atonement portrays the atoning blood of Jesus that was later accomplished as Jesus, the ultimate Lamb of God, is, is slain once for all. And by the covering of the blood, the children of Israel were shielded from the wrath of God. And similarly, we are shielded from God's judgment because Jesus is our, and this is a very good term, but a term that's complicated, maybe to some of us, propitiation. You say, where do you get that big term? It's in the Bible. It's in the 1 John chapter 2. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. What's he saying? He's saying that Jesus didn't just stand there like a, like a um, Marvel comic superhero and just take the wrath of God that deflects it and bounces it off somewhere else and somehow shields us from the wrath that we should have suffered. No, Jesus took the entire wrath of God that we deserved and bore it himself completely and fully. And therefore, there is no wrath for those who trust and believe fully in Christ alone. He is our propitiation. He consumed the wrath of God in his own person for us. Therefore, it is fully covered. It is not something you'll have to face in the future. What does that mean? That means that for you and for me, my friends, we have not only that, free, that freedom of knowing we're not going to face it in the future, but also he gives us another insight here about forgiveness in chapter, in chapter 32, verse 2. He says, when I kept talking about, uh, sorry, how blessed is the man for whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. The phrase to impute iniquity is, a, is really a, book ter, a bookkeeping term. It's about a ledger kept by a businessman. And on this side, he's got credits. On this side, he's got debits. And so on this side, God is so gracious and merciful that he writes the debt of our sin, how much we owe to him, is written on the account of Christ. And what Christ and all of his credit, all that Christ has on his account of all of his righteousness, that's written on our account. So that he looks at us 
And he doesn't say, oh, you owe me, you owe me. He says, no, look how blessed they are. They are rich in the righteousness of Christ. And it's this passage in Psalm 32 that Paul picks up and he quotes it and cites it in Romans chapter 4 when he's trying to talk about the ground of imputation, the fact that we are given this this freely uh, accounting of all of Christ's righteousness put onto our account is done on the basis of faith. It is not based on how well we perform. It's not based on how many good things we do to try to somehow get on God's good terms. Here, I'll give you a little bit. I'll give you a little bit. Pay off that debt. No, no, we have nothing to offer. Romans 4 says, the seriousness of our sin has been revealed to us clearly, but we are even more incredibly blessed to know that that sin is fully paid for, fully covered, fully forgiven, and that what we have instead is the righteousness of Christ imputed to us on our account. Therefore what? Therefore we can confess our sins. Therefore we can approach God and say, listen, God, I want to be honest and real with you because what you've promised me in the grace in the gospel gives me the freedom then to be honest and to be straight with you to come into the light as you were in the light. Why? Because the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. 1 John chapter 1. Well, I want us to then look at a second point here. Why do we do it? It's because not only because of the amazing truth of the gospel and what God has done for us in the gospel, but secondly, leaving sin unconfessed leads only to misery. Misery. During this time of hiding, over 12 long months, not 12 days, not for... 12 weeks, but 12 months. The time between his immorality and the murderous plot and the time he confesses his sin to God. David admits a very important truth. He was miserable. And that is a huge plus in this account. Now, if you're scratching your head and you're saying, how is being miserable a good thing? That's a good question. I'm glad you asked that question. He says in the account here, verse 3 and following, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. Night and day, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. It's like a Shiraco wind coming out of the east. It is a very, very hot wind And people, when that comes, the heat is so unbearable, 110 degrees, 120 degrees, you don't do anything. You're wasted. I believe what's happening here is he's saying, God's heavy hand was upon me in the sense that he was psychologically, he was emotionally, he was um, physically, and he was spiritually very in a very difficult place. He was struggling. Now, why is it good that that happens? Because I'm convinced what David is reflecting on is, I was miserable because God's hand was on me. He's alluding to the love of God and for his children 
that will chasten his children because he loves them. He doesn't want them just to keep going in the direction of sin and living in the darkness, in the shadows, hiding their, their sin from God. A love that says what? I will chastise you because I love you. And also we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that there were believers in the early church who some were weak, some were sick, some have even died because what? God will chastise them. The heavy hand of God was upon them. I forgot to read my book. Whoops, here it is. In this very interesting meditations on Psalm 51 by David, Paul David Tripp, called Whiter Than Snow. Listen to this two-paragraph reflection on, he talks about the phrase that David said in Psalm 51, let, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Similar to the thought here about misery, pain, is actually a good thing. Tripp says, we all have a perverse capacity to be comfortable with what God says is wrong. So God blesses us with uncomfortable grace. Yes, he really does love us enough to crush us so that we would feel the pain of our sin and run to him for forgiveness and deliverance. So David says in Psalm 51.8, let the bones you have broken rejoice. It is a curious phrase. Crushed bones and rejoicing don't seem to go together. You wouldn't say, hooray, I have a broken bone. But that is very close to what David is saying. He is using the searing pain of broken bones as a metaphor of the pain of a heart that you really feel, sorry, the metaphor of the pain of heart that you feel when you really see your sin for what it is. The pain of that pain is a good pain. Think about it. The physical pain of an actual broken bone. Who's ever had a broken bone? I can honestly say I have not. I don't want one, but I hope and pray I don't have one. But listen, I heard it's very painful. If you try to walk on a leg, it's broken. Not a good idea. The physical pain of an actual broken bone is worth being thankful for because it's a warning sign that something is wrong with that arm and that leg. In the same way, God's loving hammer of conviction is meant to break our heart. And the pain of heart you feel is meant to alert you to the fact that something is spiritually wrong inside of you. Like the warning signal of physical pain, the rescuing and restoring pain of convicting grace is a thing worth celebrating. Do you hear what he's saying there? He's saying that guilt and shame will wear you down. But that's a good thing. Why? Because hiding from God leaves us cut off from the joy and the blessedness of having fellowship and communion with the God that we desperately need and can enjoy. And I want you to notice here how David, in reflecting on that painful, miserable time, was such a, a great way in which he realized God was showing him grace to draw him back into what? Verse 5. Drawing him back into immediate 
and complete forgiveness. David confessed his sin, admitting the fullness of what all had taken place there, not holding back, and God forgave it all. What an encouragement to know that when our conscience is bearing down upon us, when we know there's things in our lives we need to deal with, to know that what? That in the idea of confessing sin, all we're being asked to do is what? Leave the shadows and the darkness of hiding, move into the light, and what? Move into integrity. Merely be honest, be truthful with what's really there. Don't play games. Don't imagine it's not there, but enter into truth and be honest with who we are and where, who God is and what the gospel says. At that point, we don't need to be offering up to God some sort of benevolent actions, some sort of things we have to offer to God to somehow get on his right side and to somehow get into better, uh, on better terms with him. My friend, what we're promised in the gospel is not the thought that what we have to face for, the, for not only the rest of our life, but throughout huge amounts of time after this life in purgatory is a long period of purging. No, that's not the hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel is that there is immediacy to God's forgiveness. We are immediately brought back into right terms with God when we confess our sins, turn from it, and he says, okay, I'm going to put my arms of love around you. You're forgiven. Which begs the question, why are we waiting to admit and confess our sin to God? What's holding you back? What's holding you back? Confess, admit, say the same thing with God. Enter into the truth about what it is, who you are, what you've done, what you think, and enjoy the blessedness of God's full and instantaneous forgiveness. Here's a great word for us all in terms of why we should get out of the darkness and the shadows and move into the light. Proverbs 28, verse 13. If you don't have this underlined in your Bible, please underline it. Proverbs 28, 13. He who conceals his transgressions. He who conceals his transgressions. That's living in the shadows, denial, shifting blame, all those things we talked about at the beginning. They will not prosper. And that's a good thing. <laughs> Do you see how that's a good thing? You will not prosper in terms of being able to function well physically, emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Hallelujah. My friend, if you're living in the shadows, claim that verse. Don't choose to keep God at arm's distance, like a running back giving God the stiff arm. Rather, know that God, just like he did to Adam and Eve, he's crying out to you saying, where are you? Where are you? It's not like God doesn't know where you are, but he's drawing you out of the shadows, drawing you into his grace, drawing you into the closest of who he is. And he says, listen, if you confess your sins, I am faithful I am just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness if you'll just confess and come back. So a third point I want to then make uh, is that when we don't confess our sins, 
one of the reasons why it really makes sense to confess them is because when we don't, then we're going to, it's going to impact, have, I'm sorry, it, it, it limits our impact on other people. It hinders our spiritual growth. To not confess our sins is to limit our impact on other people and hinder our spiritual growth. I don't have time to expand this too far. Verses 6 and 7. But let me just say that, uh, notice what David writes there. Everyone who is godly will pray to you in a time when you may be found. Do you sense he's no longer talking about himself here? He's now thinking about other people. He's realizing that now, having come out of the shadows, coming into the light, dealing with God in terms of truth, and finally having this great, profound, wondrous experience of the gospel, giving him that restored fellowship through Christ, he then says, listen, I am concerned about other people here. I want them to know this and experience the same thing I have. And so he wants to share the joy of gospel grace with other people. God has blessed him with restored fellowship. He wants others to know the same thing. But let me just say this. Until we confess our sins, we are in no position to point other people to God. If we're living in the shadows, then how are we going to point other people to the light of Christ if we're living in the shadows? And I wonder if that's sometimes why some of us don't have more boldness in sharing our faith. Because we're living in the shadows. We've not experienced the wonders of being truly forgiven and enjoying close fellowship with God. That is life-changing. It's, it's something that changes us at the core of our being. We can't contain the wonders of true fellowship with God. But my friend, when we have confessed our sins, we can minister to other people with integrity, with honesty, with sincerity. That's compelling. Then if you look at verse 7, David also admits, now that he's confessed his sins, that God's completely forgiven him, he sees that God has deepened his walk because of it. Look what he says there. He says it's an amazing sense of appreciation of God in a new and profound way. He says, you, Lord, are my hiding place. You preserve me from what? The trouble. All the trouble that I have deserve all of the horrendous nightmarish things that I have deserved to come down upon my own uh, shoulders. He says, you surround me with what? Not songs of dirges and condemnation, but songs of deliverance. Because he celebrated the gospel. And may I say this, Psalm 66 reminds us that if we regard wickedness in our hearts, that is, if I allow it to go on and on, I'm not going to deal with it. I'm just going to let it remain there. David says, the Lord is not going to be listening very carefully to our prayers. And so the reason to come out of the shadows is to what? Is to give opportunities for us to be more effective in other people's lives and ministering, but also what? To deepen our walk with God and experience the glories of the gospel in a fresh and vital way. Let's pray. As we just close your eyes and just take a moment and ponder these things, I'd like to just take a few moments and read some statements that come from the next lesson, lesson three of our material, Seeking Him. 
specifically from day five. I want you to see if any of these are true in you, of things in your life you need to be honest with God and start dealing with them. Are these true of you? Do you occasionally participate in corporate praise and prayer while your heart is cold, indifferent, or resistant to the Lord? Is that something you need to confess? Do you honor God with your lips when your mind and your heart are far away? What are you really thinking about when you pray? Are you quick to agree with God when His Spirit convicts you of sin, but then you tend to rationalize, justify, and defend yourself? Do you love the truth so much that you actively and regularly ask God to search your heart and reveal anything, anything that is displeasing to Him? Do you sometimes seek to create a better impression of yourself than is honestly true before other people? Are you covering up sins from your past rather than dealing with them biblically? Are you hiding specific sins or failures from your mate, your parent, your teacher, your employer? And lastly, do you put up walls to keep people from seeing the real you? Are you willing to let other people into your life to be honest about your spiritual needs, to ask for prayer about those spiritual needs, to be accountable to others for areas where you need to grow and you need to change? Lord, search our hearts. Use the brilliant, revealing light of your word, guided by the Holy Spirit, to search us, to try us, see if there's any wicked way within us, Lord. Reveal areas of compromise, areas of chronic or ongoing rebellion, of corruption in our hearts, things that, Lord, we've been avoiding, postponing, deflecting on, pointing the fault elsewhere. Lord, have your way in us. Put your heavy hand upon us, Lord, that we might be drawn into a wonderful, powerful experience of forgiveness and grace and cleansing of mercy in the glories of your love. In the, because of the gospel, Lord, draw us into that wondrous communion with you as we get out of the shadows, Lord, and move into the light. Have your way among us, we pray in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.